Hello, and welcome to Follow the Woo podcast, where each week I, Fenelon Kush, will guide you on a journey into the land of the woo. We're going to investigate witchcraft, meditations, the paranormal and supernatural, alien and fey encounters, gurus, shamanism, and, and, and all the woo. So hold on to your butt. This just might be the weirdest part of your day. Hello, humans. Holy moly. Yesterday was the winter solstice and the beginning of Yule, and we're so close to Christmas. I really can't believe it. Every year I say the same thing, but I can't believe it's the end of the year again. What I also can't believe is how close I am to my wedding. Ah! In just six days, I will be getting married. What is even happening? And because of the holiday wedding madness, I will have to take a couple weeks off from the podcast. This will be the longest I've gone without cranking out episodes since I first launched Follow the Woo. So I'm feeling a little hinky about it. But my friends, family, and most importantly, my fiance have all told me that I am not allowed to work on my honeymoon. So here's how it's going to shake out. Next week, Wednesday, December 29th, I won't be posting a regular episode, but I will be posting the second part of the deep dive Hellier chat on my Patreon. Wednesday, January 12th, we will be back on track with your regular Woo programming, and there's lots of surprises in store for Follow the Woo in 2022, so per usual, hold on to your butts. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, you may want to, because today we're diving into part two of my epic interview with the brilliant and kick-ass vampire Michelle Belanger. In case you didn't tune in last week, Michelle is also an occult expert, a psychic, educator, media personality, and author of over 30 books on paranormal and occult topics. You may have also seen her on the History Channel or Paranormal State or Portals to Hell or other paranormal shows. Just a quick update again on vampires. For those of you who are not familiar, there are in fact thousands of modern-day vampires that live all over the world and practice various ways of feeding, including the most commonly referenced way, by drinking blood. Michelle is an energy or psychic vampire and does not feed by drinking blood but still needs to feed off of others' energies to get the sustenance she needs. Of course, she only feeds off of others respectfully and with their consent. In part two of this chat, we get even weirder. We talk about the relationship between the fae and angels and vampires and the Nephilim. We talk about liminal spaces, how neurodivergence connects with psychic abilities, how the different vampire casts feed, and loads and loads more. I'll say this again, too. It seems especially timely for this episode to be released because Anne Rice passed away on December 11th. These episodes are dedicated to her and her glorious storytelling abilities. All right, on to part two of my interview with a vampire, Michelle Belanger. The relationship between the fae and jinn, the jinn. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I've been talking to a lot of different people in the paranormal world and 
for a long time, this is what I've been taught because I'm still pretty green myself, is that there have been factions within this world. So like cryptid people, they only do cryptids. Fae, mm. they only do fae. Aliens, aliens. You get the idea. But recently, it seems like that's kind of breaking up a little bit. And they, there's some overlap, which I'm really into because I, I, I think there's overlap. And I'm curious how you think about that. Like, do you think that there's far more overlap than than we think there is? And and what's your thoughts on that? I have been team overlap from the beginning. (laughs) And I am coming from a time where pagans wouldn't always play nicely with the witches or the witches wouldn't play nicely with the paranormal investigators and the occultists would like, like where everybody had their own little fiefdoms and everybody had their own language. And Rarely did anybody seem to realize that they were all talking about broadly the same thing. And I don't know if it's because I'm intersex, if it's because of my particular magical thing where like I'm very much in the spaces between, like I occupy those those liminal spaces between things. But but from the get-go, a lot of my my perspective and my role has been hey, you people over here and you people over here, you think that you're talking about two different things, but here's the stuff that we have in common. And let me help you navigate that. I'll translate your language over here and your language over here. And we can figure out what common praxis is is going on here. Mm -hmm. I love that I have lived long enough and have continued to be active in all of these metaphysical communities to see the time where those artificial boundaries have begun to naturally erode. I love it. I love it. It is where I think we might actually start to make some real headway in understanding how any of this works. I love like what the Newkirks and their crew are doing with Hellier uh, and just like going, all right, there's weird stuff and we don't have answers for it. So let's just like fly all the spaghetti at the wall (laughs) and see what's going on and just experiment. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the words and the terms, like, so I forget, it was probably 94 or 95, might've been earlier when I read uh, Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia. Mm. And again, I was, I was raised by, you know, Irish Catholics and Irish Catholics, Catholic or not, there's a lot of fairy lore and stuff that comes through that psychic and fairy stuff, like grew up with that. So when I'm reading Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia, and he's making the comparison between fairy folklore and crop circles and abductions and missing time and like these tiny little like almond shaped eyes, like, like just even some of the physical descriptors and classic UFO encounters and just pointing out like, there are similarities here. So are they the same thing? Is it our perspective? Do we have different language for the same phenomena based on our time or our culture? Like, what is this pointing at? And just just that somebody was willing to ask the question. And I love that we're asking those questions now. Yeah, it's so exciting. And I love that you brought up Hellier. I was going to bring it up at some point. Uh, that was, I, I would say... I my trifecta of frenzy in 2020 and 2021 was the psychic vampire codex hellier and this podcast and so some it, it almost created this vortex or maybe a portal whatever we could say whatever either way you get it and some shit just started to to happen for me in my life and I and I think a lot of people 
who've watched Tellier have had unusual synchronicities. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you with the background you have watching that show? So my first takeaway with Hellier was unmitigated excitement <laughs> at the fact they showed what it actually looks like, like what investigation actually looks and feels like, that they captured that sense, that it's not just sitting in a darkened room going, if that was you, could you knock again? Which is just the tedium, the, the utter tedium of, of ghost hunting. I, I can do it, but I really prefer being... Uh, basically like the walking, you know, sonar for, for the the place, because it also lets me not have to sit in the room for the next five hours asking if every creak of the building was actually a ghost, because it's not. They managed to capture the enthusiasm, the kind of willful collective madness that can happen, where extraordinary things happen and you have no answers and all you have is your tight-knit group of friends to like go did that really just happen like what 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 do you make of that and just the theory crafting those sorts of conversations are things that I have had with my tight-knit groups of friends and with my weird like circles of friends from college on that it's it's impossible I, I hadn't really expected anyone to be able to communicate the organic quality of, of that kind of experience, not only the experience, but people experiencing the experience and reacting to it and admitting where they have no answers at all. Yeah. When I saw Hellier, I thought, oh, wow, <laughs> this is, this is different. This is something I've never seen before. There are so many qualities, right? Like the cinematic element of it, the mm-hmm. fact that, like you said, it was this willful collective madness you know that you you're going through this together and and how carl specifically was able to mm-hmm. craft that so beautifully um in these like hour long episodes i was like this is some next level shit and like you said as well the the crossover of all the different sort of factions in the paranormal world and how they were just so open and vulnerable and willing to go to those places and see where the overlap is. And I I was like, yes, so many yeses. I, you know, was like throwing things at the screen. We were yelling. We were really into it. Yeah, it was, it was a fun time. I think it's a, I think it was a turning point for that world. No, absolutely. Very much next level stuff. It would not have ever existed if it was in the hands of a channel or production company, it had to be indie because indie productions are allowed to break all the rules and experiment. Mm-hmm. And there's an increasing hesitancy. I mean, we see it with like movies and everything. Like it's, let's just do the 15th remake of the same tired thing <sighs> rather than try to do something new because we're not sure if the new thing will actually take off, but we know that even though it is the 15th remake of the same tired thing, some people will still have butts in seats to watch it. If they make one more fast and furious movie, I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to like pull my eyeballs out. (laughs) How about fast and the furious meets Friday the 13th with a side of predator. Like, let's just put all all the tired, just, 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 we're at this point where media is, first of all, just eating its own tail. But second of all, they proved that it has an audience. 
So it, it takes me back one to some conversations with the production company for Paranormal State, where literally they just assume that the viewing audience are dumb, like like are are not going to understand anything. The the kind of like baby steps they would walk us back through, especially me and Elfie, Josh Light, who you know with his engineering background would try to get onto that show and explain like nuts and bolts things about debunking things and like how elect like even something as simple as explaining an emf meter and they would just edit that poor guy out every single time on the assumption that the audience wouldn't get it that he was talking over their heads and they would find it boring and they were so worried that they would just turn it off because they were bored hell your shows we are hungry for not only new ideas but for theory crafting, for that genuine exploration. And the weirder, the better. Because why not at this point? Like, explore all of it. Like, Hellier is basically one long rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And we all get to go down it with them. You brought up a really good point about the the uh, producers thinking that the audience is dumb and I love Aaron Sorkin. I'm a big West wing fan. And for, oh, one of the major reasons is because Aaron Sorkin never assumes that the audience is dumb. Uh, yeah. I think he's one of the best TV writers ever. And I love that. Uh, if you give the audience a chance, they'll meet you there. And I think I don't know when that happened, but it happened a long time ago <laughs> and really in the cooking up in the early stages of Hollywood, where it was just like, D keep it dumb. Keep, you know, people are dumb. And yes, many people are dumb, but we can create a synergy. We can, there's so much power behind storytelling. People can actually raise their intelligence, the more intelligent programming you put out. To me, the reality is not that people are dumb, but that a lot of people are ignorant. And if That's you just, a better, more PC yeah, term. Yes. <laughs> if you just keep giving them the same like level of like, just we're just going to scratch the surface of this and never go deep, then they're always, like the viewing audience is always only going to have a superficial understanding of what they are exposed to. But if you challenge them, if you push those boundaries, if you go deep, and are engaging while you go deep, you can break that superficial barrier and bring everybody up with you. It's a mind fuck. It's a total, they'd have to completely change the way that they, mm -hmm. they look at the whole process. But I want to go back to yeah. the, the crossover with the Fae, the cryptids, all that. Yeah, yeah, and I just want to ask you real quick, do you think that vampires are Fae? Oh, wow. That's a neat question because trying to understand the whole vampire thing, like a lot of my research in folklore and mythology was like, okay, are there other things in like other religions and other backgrounds? Like, like, are there people like me? Is there a historical record of stuff like this? And there are absolutely fae that are vampiric, just as part of, of canon. Um, the Leon and Shay, who was, she's a fairy girlfriend, but she's very uh, inspiring, but she would like uh, what's what's the quote? The poets that she inspires lead brief but brilliant lives. Mm. Uh, they actually did uh, an episode on Deep Space Nine with basically based off of this fairy concept of this sort of muse who feeds off of the person that she's inspiring. And, and that's not the only fae where that's a thing. So it gets really complicated really quickly. 
Oscar Wilde's mom was a big writer on fairy folklore uh, from from especially the, the the Irish perspective, and she's got a collection of stuff. And she goes in like what seems like a sudden like one eighty in her fairy stuff because there's a point where she's just like, oh well, yeah, like all fairies are. We we know the the elves are the fallen angels and the nephilim, and she just kind of like moves happily on from there. And it's like, mer? okay, so this is so understood at your time period that you're just like, oh, well, yeah, obviously some of this is just a vestigial memory of this other thing. Could you, could you explain a little bit more, Speranza? That would be nice. <laughs> uh, what I can say is this, as someone who's dug deeply into folklore and mythology um, comparatively across a number of cultures, I, I will freely admit uh, a fair amount of ignorance in Arabic and Asian folklore simply because, uh, and African, because there's a lack of access to a lot of like reliable sources. But for, from what I've dug into, uh, the deeper you go, the more the words just become irrelevant. Werewolf, vampire, demon, witch, fairy, fallen angel, they're all talking about something other. Uh, and there are intriguing similarities where sometimes you can tell that this is very much a story that has been passed along orally over time and it has developed a certain character is often very indicative of the culture from which it has arisen. And then there are things where you look and you can kind of read between the lines and see these are people who witnessed something and they don't know what they experienced. So they made a story about it. They gave it a name. Right. And I don't know that we will ever be able to fully unveil those other things, those little seeds of truth at the core of certain stories and certain myths. But I think anybody who studies mythology and folklore has to admit there's a point where there's some real stuff somewhere underneath there, underneath the veils of, you know, temporal and cultural trappings that point towards something that we're, maybe we were not always alone here. Maybe not everybody wearing a human body was as human as everybody else, that there's mm -hmm. something else there. And what we make of that, I think, ends up being each person's belief or interpretation like that. You know, you've got to draw your own conclusions at that point. Yeah. There's some, there's, there's a neat seed. Have you noticed that during the pandemic, the other, we'll just call it the phenomena, have, have you noticed that there's an increase of activity in, in that world? Yes. And I use uh -huh. the term world loosely because, yeah. like, what do we call it? Dimension or parallel realms? Or, so, yeah, again. Yeah. Shadow side, subtle reality, like, yeah. like Underworld. Other, the umbra, <laughs> like this, this thing that we don't really have a good collective word for, this, this space that is sideways from but woven throughout what we think of as ordinary reality that nevertheless influences and that we can catch out of the corner of our eye and sometimes straight on, astoundingly. There's so much that has been going on with the pandemic and leading up to it and, and a kind of worldwide crisis and unrest. And 
one thing I can say as somebody who works with energy the way that I do is emotions deeply intensify energy. Each person, if they are a candle flame, that flame grows brighter whenever there is a, a peak emotional experience, whether it is you know traumatic emotion or brilliant, wonderful joy. But your flame then puts out more light, more heat into the ambient thing and becomes part of this, this great, you know, kind of current. And, and we are all participating in that and being influenced by it. And at times of great turmoil in the world, those currents grow deeper and stronger. And as much as we're also adding to them, we're being pulled and carried along with them. And it's not only us. I think it influences much more and also catches the attention of anything that is tangential to our reality. Like, Mm -hmm. I would imagine that our entire planet right now, psychically, just looks like it's vibrating. You know, not not in like a, a new age, like, oh, the vibration is raising. No, like we are just collectively like there is just this thing going on and there is so much pain and suffering and joy and like everything is suddenly intensified. So if, if there is any being out there that can pick up on that, we've got to be really loud right now. Yeah, I imagine. I, I think of critical mass theory that right before you get to that, that jump. And I feel like that's where we are. It's like we have maximum suffering and maximum joy, sort of they're dancing back and forth together. And it does, it does feel like a a kind of nauseating vibration almost. It's just like, I think it's been personally a really difficult time, but I think Americans have been more resistant in some way, generally speaking. What do you think about that? As far as, I mean, you're here, you're in Ohio. (laughs) What I can say is this, is where we are in the U.S. culturally is so painfully reminiscent of the satanic panic that I'm like, oh, please, no, oh, please, no, oh, please, no. We were doing so good. Why? I hope, I hope, I hope we pull ourselves back from that precipice, but... I don't know. It's it's so disconcerting to see the gulf in people's ideologies and literally the way that people perceive reality right now based on the media that they consume, based on the news they consume, based on which echo chamber they might be in. Uh, and I can't quite shake the sense that on some deep level, on both sides of that gulf, at least some of the major influences are aware of the kind of magical power of thought mm. and of belief. I genuinely hope I'm wrong, um, but I, I don't know. Like It really feels like, consciously or otherwise, like there's, there's this profound magical working on both both of these perspectives to just sort of split people off, create divides. I, I don't know where we're going, but it's a hell of a, we're going at it at a hell of a pace. It is reminiscent of other times I remember. And it's one of those things that makes me go, it would be nice if I believed my past life memories were just a pretty story I told myself. 
because I really think that we've been on these precipices before. And I don't know that as, as a species, we've figured out how to handle them gracefully yet. I, that was my next question. What is your feeling about what's going to happen to us? Just sort of your, your gut, gut check on like, we are at this moment where if we don't change things, is it going to get, is, do you have a hopeful outlook or is it sort of a more pessimistic? I'd love to be hopeful, but I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Just as a student of history, not even going into the woo uh, reincarnation stuff, there are so many other times where we have been convinced collectively that it was the end of the world. And it was certainly the end of a way of life. It was the end of cultures. It was the end of empires. But humans are like cockroaches. We just kind of keep trucking along. (laughs) (laughs) Sadly, sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, sadly, sometimes. Like, Like oftentimes, like everything collapses, people pick up the pieces, and then they just sort of like build it exactly the way it was before. I hope it doesn't end in violence. But by the same token, it's already violent right now. Yeah, pretty severely. What I have noticed in the psychic community, but then also with Stephanie as well, she's explained, she had explained to me that it's pretty common for vampires, psychics, energy workers to be sensitive to the pharmaceuticals and foods Mm -hmm. and pretty much fucking everything. It's kind of annoying. Why do you think that is? So many thoughts. One thing was interesting to me, the American Society for Psychical Research, maybe 20 years ago now, was doing an experiment based on the thought that a histamine response, that literally people who were sensitive were also physically sensitive, that there was a level of sensitivity there, because based on that anecdotal evidence. I'm not sure whatever came out of that, like, but the theory was like, are our brains or bodies like literally chemically wired differently? Mm. I kind of go two different ways with it is there's that sense that there's just something profoundly and significantly different in the way that we operate, like on some fundamental way. It's it's interesting watching the d- discourse on like neurodivergence evolve because so many of the folks that I know who identify as psychic and sensitive and everything are also popping off as neurodivergent. And I'm pretty sure I do too. Where it's like, okay, so so are we just talking about people who are fundamentally wired differently? Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm a firm believer, like everybody's some level of psychic or sensitive. That that, that actually the folks who are like null, who who, who don't have perceptions, uh, are outliers. That they're more like someone who's blind. Like it's it's not that there aren't people who who don't have those abilities, but the default is to be sighted. The default is to actually have those perceptions. And it's a difference in how they process information and what information they pay attention to. I used to volunteer and work closely with a lot of autistic kids, the sort of like profoundly autistic children who would be institutionalized um, and who were not really able to like work with society, often nonverbal. And one of the things I noticed with not all, but many of them was the nonverbal ones, I could get to respond to me if I thought at them the same way that I was accustomed to among my family. Your vampiric family? Growing up, like like, like Just, literally my, yeah, yeah. The, 
growing up with 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 folks um my the, the people who raised me like like psychic that stuff family was, okay yeah that, that family too like like pretty much i learned how to be telepathic pretty early on so like we we could send thoughts and emotions and things at one another and so it was normal for me to do that and it didn't occur to me that that was why but then i started kind of checking it out like, like testing it as like okay are they responding to me because you know is this kid responding to me because he is you know, there's something interesting about me. He likes my watch, whatever, or, okay, I'll make the same, like, I'll look at him the same way, or I'll present myself to him the same way. And I won't think at him, never caught his attention, thought at him, caught his attention. And mm-hmm. like, we would interact and communicate never so clear as like, I am thinking a thought at you. <laughs> Not Hollywood. It's more um, emotion and intent and sometimes images. But we definitely would would interact. And he he was not the only one by far. All of that is to say, I, I really wonder if what we think of as, as psychic is we are wired differently in how much information we exclude or include, how we process that. I don't know. I've, I've got a lot of different thoughts that some lean toward a spiritual take on it and some lean toward a purely physiological take. There's a lot of weird places you can go with this. There's like hybridization theories Mm. and also just from more of a shamanic lens, the wounded healer as an archetype and that we are, are wired differently because it's contrast. It's an interesting way for us to learn. We can grow faster in some cases. A lot of people have different theories about mm. that. Like the level of suffering that you have early on can enhance the way you perceive other people's energies. And I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff, but the one that's the most woo, I think, is the hybridization. I'm curious about your thoughts mm. on that. Like that humans have somehow been spliced together with. <laughs> other entities over long, long time, like mm. not not just like recently? Well, I can say from on, on one thing, just purely personal belief, I don't think everything in a human body is is or was originally human. That's a personal belief. And it's a pretty firm one. So this is a story that is, take it for whatever it was, because I didn't get to meet my maternal grandfather until I was in my 20s, a family drama. And I understood a little bit of how my grandmother interacted around me once I met him because I was his spitting image, like personality and everything. And he had cheated on her and it was just, it was fraught. So I, my last name, Belanger, is from him. And I pronounce it Belanger as opposed to Belanger, how I was raised to pronounce it, because from him, it, it's French. It means beautiful angel or beautiful angel people. And my grandfather, who was a World War II vet, who spent time in France before the storming of D-Day doing nefarious things and mixing with the villagers and probably killing people in hand-to-hand combat and all sorts of stuff that seemed like tall tales, but it's all checked out, had an interesting story for the origin of our family name, why we're all tall, why we have a peculiar charisma, why we're all musical. Uh, with perfect pitch, and while why we're all psychic energy workers, like there's just an inherent thing, also vampiric, which was interesting to learn from my grandfather. He was a hundred percent convinced we were descended from the Nephilim, just straight up. 
his father was the one who told him like they would they were the Belangers and they were the Lussiers and they would occasionally like intermarry the family to keep the bloodline pure and I'm just like okay I can mean, I get more on that grandpa yeah uh, <laughs> can you <unpack> that? <laughs> yeah I, he, he's just like well there were angels that came down and they did this and, blah, 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 blah. and I'm like have you read the book of Enoch because like at the time like I'm reading that he's like the book of what I'm like literally someone like oral tradition this to you are you fucking shitting me <laughs> so did were you able to get more from his father or that's where he got it from his father or his grandfather this was literally like one brain-breaking conversation with my grandfather <laughs> it was spurred because my, my mom was dying of cancer and it wasn't something he talked about frequently and my mom called up and she was like okay Dad just had the weirdest conversation with me, and like he was like, you know, don't worry about dying because we're immortal. He like, like, there's just she's like, you know, in the hospital trying to like deal with some current fucking cancer emergency because it was 13 years of like up and down. And he just laid all this out for her, and she's like, Have you ever heard anything like this? And I'm like, Well, yeah, there's a book of me, and I think so. I, so I followed up with him, and I'm like, Okay, so what do you tell me in your own words? What what what's going on with this? And like the, the whole family, like intermarrying thing. And he's like, yeah, sometimes even first cousins. After he died, I got to confirm the first cousin thing because that was his mom and dad. Hmm. So, so he didn't, in so many words, say that that, that was definitely, but that, that this was like, they're, they're Acadian French. I don't fucking know. He died before he got too deep into any of it. I mean, I know from like just historical research that especially French families it was all the rage at a certain point in time to just sort of like claim some sort of inhuman ancestor. The fairy Melisande, the, the Quinitar, it was just sort of a thing, especially among a lot of European royalty. But that married to a Speranza going on about, oh, well, yes, the fairies and the elves are all just like, you know, some of them are the Nephilim and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, but where is this written down somewhere? Like, like <laughs> is this just something people told one another? Like, how? Because I still need, to, like, like, I'm still very married to that idea that the historical record, I need primary materials. I, I can talk about it as a belief, like a quirky thing my grandfather told me. He yeah. believed it. The Nephilim has been coming up so much lately. And I'm really curious why. <laughs> and there's some different perspectives that are cropping up. Like one, and I have a friend, he has a podcast called Strange Familiars. And he has this guy on brother Richard. He is an Irish monk and he is so wicked smart. Like I could listen to him all day long. And he basically debunks the listeners of this podcast. Many of them think that the Nephilim mm. are cryptids. And mm. he's like, mm, no. no, he just sort of like debunks that. And he he's very familiar with the Bible and he kind of goes in and tells you what they could be. And he mentions giants the fallen angels, that sort of hybridization that we were talking about. Yeah. I haven't read in a long time, and not all of it, the book of Enoch, but I think it's in like the first-ish chapter, right? Somewhere yeah, pretty it's early on. Enoch 6 or 12. Like there, there's basically the book of Enoch is like several books mushed together. Um, so the book of the Watchers and the book of the Giants are probably older holdovers. I have spent a lot of time and own a lot of books and weird fucking books that I've tracked down to try to like really dig into this. I was interested in it before the weird shit with my grandfather. The weird shit with my grandfather just had me go, okay. 
Uh, <laughs> sure. Okay. It is a theme through a lot of my stuff, often expressed in fiction or poetry or song, because some of it is just stuff that I'm not willing to commit to in like a literal sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I've pieced together from the perspective of a scholar, I will say Andrew Collins has a book called From the Ashes of Angels. And although I don't agree with all of his conclusions, which that's not a, a, a point against him, he has some of the most interesting insight into like what's going on with the Nephilim. Because some folks are going to be like, oh, it was aliens that came down and it's just ancient aliens and we called them this. And I'm not quite in the ancient aliens camp, especially not the like, you know, UFOs came down and, and this. If we're just talking about the book as it is written, it is absolutely hybridization. The Bene Ha Elohim, the, the sons of God, came down. They found the daughters of men fair. And they committed what to Judaism at the time was a great sin, which was mixing together two types. Famously, uh, Sorkin's um, President Bartlett goes off on that in like his his long ramble about mm-hmm. like, you know, my mom has clothing of, of two different things. Should I stone her today or tomorrow? So, you know, you couldn't mix like cloth together. You couldn't mix animals together that were two different types. You couldn't, you absolutely couldn't mix people together that were two different types. And the Nephilim, well, actually the Watcher Angels who were different from the Nephilim, the Nephilim are their children. So they came down and there was this miscegenation of angelic and human. And that produced the the Gibberim, the Anakim, the Nephilim, um, these giants. And the giants were born unnaturally strong and unnaturally tall and they had this overpowering appetite and it's vampirism that the the vampire studies that got me reading this the first time because they drink blood no really there is a tiny little line one single line that talks about some of the sins that they commit that are the cause for the, the flood and the condemnation of these you know, impossible hybrids, which is that they have an appetite that can't be sated and they would sin against, um, you know, they they started to eat the flesh and eat the blood of of all of these things, including their fellows, including other people. Mm. Uh, Oh, quick question. There's there's a lot there. Like, like there's a lot there. Um, Do you think that that was a byproduct of the hybridization? Like that, do you think they were, they were interested in in drinking blood or, or, or the, doing those acts prior to the hybridization, or was that a byproduct of the mixing? So the watchers themselves don't have, don't seem to have that problem. They are, you know, just sons of heaven, whatever that might be. And their children being mixed with humans within the context of the book of Enoch, they are neither properly of heaven nor of earth. And so neither place really can sustain them. And that becomes important once they're judged and destroyed because they can't exactly be killed. Their bodies can be killed. So as part of the judgment of the book of Enoch, and and we see this in in Genesis too, because the judgment is the flood. Um, And the flood isn't just there because humanity did bad stuff. The, the, The flood is there because humanity mixed with these angels had hybrids in positions of power, had hybrids teaching all kinds of stuff, and the parents teaching divination and root cutting and the arts of war, the arts of cosmetics, like all of these things came down, at least within this story, from these these angelic parents. And the children 
as part of the judgment, first were set against one another to, to battle, to fight to the death, so that the fathers were condemned to watch their children kill each other before the flood. And then their spirits were condemned as belonging neither to heaven nor to hell, nor to earth, to remain on the earth as spirits, as hungry, evil spirits, constantly lashing out against obsessing, possessing, and preying upon the children of humanity. Like there are three lines that basically set these up as this is why demonic possession exists. There is a lot in this tiny little book that was incredibly influential. Whether there's anything like true, like like factual about it or not, the influence it had on beliefs subsequent to it. I ended up going down that very deep rabbit hole because my religion 101 professor, Dr. Joseph Kelly, just offhandedly uh, in the middle of class was like, oh, well, all angels are, are, are vampires. And I was just like, what? What are you even talking about? He cheerfully, because this is at the time, it's 1991. I'm like, I think I'm a vampire. What the fuck? What the fuck is up with this vampire shit? Oh my God. I, I need to keep my GPA up, but what the fuck? Um, <laughs> and then and, he and says. He, yeah, and he just tosses this out. There is the story of Jacob wrestling the angel and you never even think about it, but okay. So the angel comes to Jacob, like they wrestle and they wrestle till dawn and the angel is winning and the angel like puts his hip out of joint and everything. And then the sun starts to come up and the angel has to leave. Oh, interesting. Now, one of the things that you'll see in fairy folklore also, and in, Possibly, I don't, I'm not as familiar with gin stuff, but I would be really intrigued to see if it's also there, is liminal times are significant to the other, to these othered beings. Either a liminal point where they can manifest or a liminal point where they must go away. And so, like, as, as the cock crows, as the sun rises, this, this angel, this being has to leave. And that's how Jacob wins his wrestling match with the angel. Basically, he waits him out until he has to go. So, so why the sun coming up makes the angel flee? Who fucking knows? But that idea of an othered being as a supernatural thing that is somehow bounded by these cycles yeah. is as old as that biblical story. There's you know, a lot there's, here. There's a lot. There's a yeah, lot. Yeah, you could you could go on. I mean, <laughs> I feel like we could talk about this for like three more hours. What do you think? based off of the the depths of the rabbit hole that you went down, what do you think the definition of an angel is now with all the, the research that you've done? How, how do you specifically devi- define it? They're a type of, of spirit. I think that they sometimes can incarnate. I don't think that doing so is easy or simple. I think that they can also possess or obsess people, like basically trans possession. I don't like to put things in hierarchies, but I, I kind of do default to some of the, the Greek ideas and, and potentially older ideas that like humans are like, you know, one step on the ladder and there's some other sorts of beings above us. Oh yeah, I'm fine with that. I think there's way higher beings than us. <laughs> we I, seem I, kind of young. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think they are bigger. And older, um, and and by bigger I mean more complex. What I actually think, and I'll just assume people can kind of follow along with this, is 
in the Kabbalistic model of the tree of life, you have these sort of emanations of divinity. There's there's an infinite source. And even as like, you know, beings, if we're trying to reach up to that, we can never get to the infinite itself. We can get to the, the foot of the throne of God. Like we can get to a point of sort of like perceiving it through another mediated source. If in the beginning there was an infinite thing and it wanted to understand itself mm-hmm. and it split itself up first from infinitude to, we'll, we'll just go basic Western perceptions of binary things for, to light and darkness, just from, from all to like two separate things. My idea of what an angel actually is, is something that is a little bit less differentiated, like a little closer to that point where infinity has split itself off into smaller pieces to understand itself. So to me, an angel is simultaneously a concept, a sound, a name, an energy a feeling, like the sort of purest outside of infinitude expression of a thing, a little bit too big for a human brain to wrap itself around. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're doing a really good job articulating what is probably not really able to be articulated. I've (laughs) put a lot of time trying to wrap my head around it. And this gets into my like personal gnosis, but it's almost that sense of if the universe is a symphony, is a song, if if, it, if it's all music, a pure primal tone. Mm-hmm. It's more closely connected to the OG, the real OG, OG, yeah, desire of the I call it the primordial ooze, the like pre manifestation mm-hmm. to form which is totally unfathomable, that it, it's like somehow connected to that more closely. And, and that's what makes it how we would perceive it as hierarchical from our brains, but it not, it's not necessarily that way, but it, it is and it's not a, kind of at the same time, I think. Yeah, I think but you, you did a really uh, a good job of, of explaining that. And you mentioned the duality. I'm now, just for the record, writing notes on my leg. <laughs> I, I filled up the, pe- the piece of paper. So we've moved on. So <laughs> you mentioned duality, that that beginning sort of, you know, OG desire. And you said, let, let's just put it within the, the framework of like our human brains and light and dark, right? Do you think, I often think about this and I and I don't, I haven't, I don't know if I'll ever figure it out, but do you feel that the earth on its own is a polarity planet or that Mm. the entire universe operates in polarity? Hmm. Oh, that's complicated. Right. Because some of it comes down to perception. I'm, I'm I'm fond of trying when people are like, oh, demons, demons, they're all evil. And I'm like, you know, what's evil, actually? Like most humans define evil by something that inconvenienced them. Mm-hmm. It took a thing away from you and therefore it's evil. And, and that's a really limited perspective. So I think we are a polarity space because we're not collectively at a species in a place 
where we're really able yet or willing to dive into the nuance, into the gray spaces. We're, we're just making baby steps toward understanding and like wrapping our heads around things. And, you know, l- little kids understand things in very stark terms. Everything is, you know, good or bad, hot or like it, you, you have to put things in the simplest possible concepts. And, and I think collectively as a species, we're still at a point where we're just playing with the building blocks and really haven't quite gotten to a point where we understand that there's more to it than that, that it's not just build a thing up and knock it down. Another thought just popped into my mind. Um, there's this story. I, I'm not going to remember all the context, but essentially there is this monk on a talk show and the, you know, talk show host was like, hello, welcome to the show. You know, this kind of guy. And he was like, do you, I don't know how they got to this question, but eventually he was like, do you believe that you're, do you believe in God? And he says, I believe I am God. And, Mm -hmm. and the, and the host says, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, the only difference between me and you is that I know I'm God and you don't. And I'm the reason I brought that up is because you mentioned that we're sort of at this elementary stage in our development. And I think the more we grow and learn, the closer we get to that understanding that we're sort Mm. of all co-creating from that OG desire of the primordial ooze, right? And the contrast is sort of, from my perspective right now, maybe just part of how we grow and and expand Mm. at this time. And maybe that'll shift and maybe it has shifted on other Mm. planets. I'm not sure. So I go back to that sort of emanation of divinity for lack of a better term. I really think personally that it's like all beings are all of those things. And it's just it's Carl Sagan who said, like, we are the universe trying to understand itself, trying to know itself, breaking itself down into smaller and smaller con- constituent parts. And there are some things that are a little bit closer to to that. And I think humans are pretty differentiated. Like, like we're we're tiny little bits of like how how let's explore this one particular way of being and like like so many different perspectives. So one, I think we are all divine and the divine and although it might seem a lot to wrap one's head around like we are simultaneously individual with free will and yet also part of this collective that is experiencing itself yeah Uh, and i think folks who have a little bit of empathy not like i'm psychic empath but like the ability to recognize that the suffering of another being outside of myself is suffering that that also affects me that that like suffering exists and as much as i want to not suffer i should also strive to ease the suffering of things around me because when one of us is in pain all of us are in pain mm-hmm. i think this time in the pandemic i mean i would hope for anybody who has eyes to see or or, or a sense to perceive could recognize that like if if you are even remotely psychic you can feel that unrest. You can feel just the the toll that all of this has taken on all of us. Yeah. And 
if some of us are suffering, even if you are not directly a party to the fact that they're starving, the fact that they're sleeping rough on the street, the pain that they feel, the weariness, it taxes all of us. It diminishes all of us. So to me, that's kind of proof that we should like maybe try a little harder to realize that it's not just all about I, me, me, that there's there's a we there. And I'm saying that as a psychic vampire who like feeds off of people. <laughs> saying that as 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 possibly a you know human incarnated entity that, entity that's been around for a very long time and doing some weird funky stuff. But I will also say this kind of going back to like the Nephilim, angel, whatever. I know there often are like schools of thought where like, oh, angels are just aliens. The Nephilim are just aliens. Like, and it's it's not as simple as that. I won't rule out the possibility that there are beings advanced enough to be tooling around there in like actual craft and, and traveling from place to place. But I am firmly in the camp that beings that are self-aware, that are uh, spiritual or beings that are self-aware and uh, incredibly advanced don't need a spaceship to move between realities or spaces? It's a possibility, yeah. Yeah, I've definitely thought about that before. There's a lot to that thought, not the least of which being. It's, it's why sometimes I'll say, like, I don't think everything running around in a human body started off human. Yeah, I think it's possible to visit the planet and come in through the womb door, come in through wear the clothes and kind of like sightsee for a little while. Mm-hmm. Recently, I was told by, uh, actually, it's happened like 10 years ago as well. But I, recently, a few people have come to me psychics, and they've said that I'm a star seed. I've been here lots of times, but I've been mostly on other planets. And that's why I have missed, I've always felt like I missed somewhere else, at least in this lifetime that I can remember. And I do have a, a past life memory from early on, that seemed like I might have been with people that weren't humans, but I mm. I can't say for sure. It was so early and I was young. Do you ever have that feeling where you you miss something that isn't here? Yeah. One of those really interesting moments was, so Elfie's dad, James Music, died before I got to meet him. Actually, Elfie kind of uh, like like really grooved into some of my work because she found my album, Blood of Angels. And it was one of those, you know how you pick up some music that like, this is the music getting me through this terrible time. Yes. Blood of Angels was, was apparently that for Elfie. And so we bonded a little bit about that. And also there were, there, there are things I, like I hide stuff, maybe not so subtly in, in everything. Like everything is about everything I create, even if it's like fiction, even if it's music, like there's bits of, of insight, bits of story or myth or, or history. Uh, things to kind of like call to people to wake them up to be like think about this or if this is you like remember this so there's a song on there Elashina that's in sort of a language but not a language and that's intentional in the title track of Blood of Angels well long story short there were things that reminded her of stuff that her father had had taught her and also he was a painter and he painted things from his past lives he painted things from ritual he painted Paintings that were intended to be like gateways to perceive into other realities. Like there, there's a lot of deep magic in his work. And whenever people tell me things like this, I, I take it with a grain of salt. Like I, I am very much a, like, I need to see it and experience it for myself before I commit 
to going, yes, I agree with you. They had recently moved a bunch of his stuff to the PRS offices. And there's a there's an elsewhere, there's a, a sort of liminal place that that I and several other people that I have worked with remembered. And we've, you know, struggled to kind of like put a description to it because it doesn't feel like it's here and it doesn't feel like it's entirely physical. And it's very hard to kind of like wrap your head around like what that looks like. Imagine turning the corner <laughs> out there to do work with the the Paranormal Research Society and I faceplant into a painting of one of the places that I remember. Wow. Painted by James Music. And he was already, he had already passed. Oh yeah, he, yeah, we, we, we had never interacted. We had never had a chance to talk to one another, not one or the other influencing the other. And then the, the, the other fun kicker is there's an artist that I work with who was working through memory stuff. And I was kind of her spotter. We do that a lot with the way we do reincarnation stuff is someone who is not invested uh, or not necessarily like entangled in those time periods acts as like your, your researcher, like you immerse yourself in the experience, you record as much as you can, but don't try to research up on it. Just get it out without being tainted. So your spotter is the one who double checks it. This particular artist, her way of getting the stuff out was often to draw it. So there's like a whole freaking graphic novel of some of her past lives, which is amazing. Awesome. Yeah, freaking awesome. And also like, not sure what we can ever do with it, but it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. She sends me this, this place that she's been trying to wrap her head around. And there's some specific architecture and some specific like colors and geography to it. And I see it. I'm like, I'm like hang on. And I go back through the like 20,000 photos on my phone. I don't think I'm <laughs> overestimating. And I find the picture I took of James Music's painting. And I put them side by side and I take a picture of that. And the only difference was style. Dang. And again, like these are the things where as much as I want to be skeptical and try to be rational and like really hold to like the very materialist scientific like brain that I was born with that just wanted to like you know go off and, and you know do sciencey things. I I don't have a way of debunking that. Like there is something there, some deep truth that you know two people separated by over a thousand miles separated by generations who never spoke with one another, who produced something that looked the same. And it's not, you know, just like something that they would have pulled out of pop culture or it, it, there's something there. We're looking at something, what it is and why it is that is left to theology, I think. But, you know, our, our paranormal quest is, there's something there. Why do you think it's important to investigate the other, the paranormal, these other realms? What to you is so important about it? To understand self, to understand the self in relation to what we experience and to understand how we're interconnected. And by we, I mean everything, people, stars, trees, animals, like there's something deeper than just, 
nine to five jobs and making money and gambling on Bitcoin. Like there's more <laughs> to everything around. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Bitcoin. <laughs> I have to ask though, to wrap up the Nephilim thing, do you believe that you are a Nephilim? Not necessarily in a literal sense, but I think that the family story encapsulates something. And it's a way of contextualizing a difference that clearly was was passed down and maybe had a genetic component. Within the vampire community, uh, a, a lot of us would be like, when, when we'd have those deep conversations, like the, one of the debates was like, are we born this way? Is this something passed along on souls? Is there a genetic component? In the same way that there's anecdotal evidence that psychic abilities tend to run in families, mm -hmm. a number of folks who are, especially psychic vampires, would often learn after the fact that there were family members who were also the same way they were. They might not have hit on the same word, but the abilities were the same. Um, and a, a curious pattern that we'd noticed was it would... You know, they'll say it skips a generation, but I think it was a different way of presenting. Often a vampiric kid had an empathic parent and that, that empath parent had a vampiric parent. Like it, And this is purely in like conjecture, but I really do see those abilities, those ways of interacting and interfacing with energy as two sides of the same coin, two different ways of expressing the same way of processing stuff. They're both kind of taking things in, in a certain way. And it's just slight difference in mechanics. But before the Nephilim conversation, uh, the vampire conversation happened with my grandfather. Uh, this was when I was still pretty convinced that he was like, you know, World War II vet, great generation. Didn't get the sense that he was super Christian or anything, but you know, my vampire codex was coming out. It's like, you know, 2004 and I needed to see, he's like, oh, your, your mom's telling me she's really proud. You've got a book coming out. What is it? And I'm like, since about vampires. Because <laughs> 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 I hadn't historically hadn't had a really good, re, you know, reception from especially like uh, boomers and, and older folks about it. So I explain it to him. We're sitting at my mom's kitchen table in Texas and he starts crying because this this big rangy six foot eight motherfucker who was still doing 50 push-ups a day uh when he woke up starts crying and i was like oh oh okay yeah he's sure he's gonna have to pay a bunch of money to the priests to pray for me just like aunt rita did and what he says is like there's a word for us and what followed was an outpouring of his experience of someone who had been closeted his entire life about this whole aspect of how he interacted with energy. He, he, he made no bones about being sensitive. He would call it, you know, mind over matter. Like he, he was what I called a blue collar occultist. He'd never cracked a book, but he could do stuff. Mm -hmm. But he didn't talk about feeding off of people. That had been a deep, dark, conflicted secret. And weirdly, it had actually played a role in why he was sleeping around in my grandmother, because he'd learned pretty early on that if he only fed off of the same person over and over again, it often exhausted them. And the only way that he felt comfortable to do what he was doing is he would couch it in intimate interactions because that way they got something out of it and he got something out of it. Lord, his life would have been different if he discovered polyamory, uh, like completely, but like not, not of that generation. 
So he was he was vampiric. I mean, I had a sense when I met him. I'm like, oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. How do we have this conversation? But, you know, awkward family things, lots of awkward family things. Uh, so it wasn't something that I brought up until we talked about the book. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm like sitting there in fuck Texas just going, okay, but, you know, I hit on the word and the language. I, I talked with, um, you know, early on, I was reaching out to folks from different cultures going, okay, hello, my, my, my Chinese American friend who's like first generation, like I have heard about Qi and Qigong and I am a Westerner and I'm like, I am seeing it through the white gaze. Like, what does this mean? And like, do you have any concept of psychic vampires? And, you know, the friend was just like, we just have people with high Qi and low Qi, you share Qi and it's not a big deal. Would it be a high Qi for a vampire? Or low, or low Qi. So, so oh, people, no, obviously. Low yeah, Qi. Yeah. And so Some you people, need to... Got yeah, it. you just... You just sit in a circle and share chi and everybody's copacetic like people have different relationships with chi sometimes it'll shift sometimes like illness will cause it sometimes it's just a matter of like not being able to connect to or process the right stuff but like it was just presented as like oh well blah and i'm like do you have any idea how much teenage angst that would have just fixed like so much. <laughs> Seriously. Well, and, and I wanted to get on, I wanted to dive into this topic a little bit more, the feeding specifically, because I know that the warriors, the priests and the counselors all feed very differently. And so, yeah, I can imagine like from the priest perspective, the way you need to feed, it seem, seems though, and correct me if I'm wrong, hmm. that priests need the most um, yes. energy of all of the three castes. And they need it in a very specific way. Whereas counselors, I believe, are like the second. They, they need kind of the second amount, uh, most amount. And then the, the warriors need the least amount. And the counselors, they can get it in so many different ways. Whereas it seems yeah. like y'all just have a, a cu- one or two maybe ways that you, you can get it. And, and it kind of impedes on your, on your feeding and, and your chi, depending on how you look at it when I was first like comparing and like going through the thing, like basically interviewing people, like, how does this work for you? And and, then like, what's this? And started off with the, okay, some people are vampiric and then realized, no, some people are vampiric this way, but some people are also taking energy, but it's supplemented. So like, like I started to like get my head around all of this and I'm like, Oh, that, that makes sense with the past life stuff. So this, there's a circuit. So, so this makes a circuit. Okay. As I've, lived it, worked with people, taught with people um, all of the time. One of the things that I've noticed is it comes down to how you process the energy, but also what you're doing with it. So it really does resonate with that three notes in a chord. So if the priest is the higher note, they're also operating on like this high level, like there's just, just a higher output and so there, it requires a lot more to keep it going. It's, it's, it's a much more rapid vibration, for lack of a better term. And yeah, there's some interesting limitations in how you and from what source you can get anything that is processed enough, intense enough, um, that has a high enough quality. And that's usually just people. And frequently also with intense emotional experiences to sort of like heighten that uh your your average person just does doesn't do enough with their energy isn't like putting enough energy out uh or doing enough work with it on a regular basis to have it refined enough to be other than like okay well that that was a little bit that got me by a little bit 
Um, so people who are regular energy workers, people who are by my friends, high chief, like people who, you know, you, you know, these people who like, they just, they have so much energy and, and so like, like they, they can't even like focus their thoughts because there's just so much racing around and it, it is as detrimental to them as the lack is detrimental to someone like me. Whereas, uh, the, the folks who fall into the warrior thing is like, they, they operate on like this low sort of base note where they almost don't even recognize because it's so so much of a primal aspect of how they interface that they're taking anything they're just you know kind of trucking along doing their thing and it's just a very slow absorption outside of specific moments where they're, they're suddenly like oh i'm doing energy work I don't know. It's fascinating to me the way in which that falls along a circuit, sort of like positive, negative, neutral, and like the push-pull between them and the fact that those three aspects of working with energy and, and kind of interfacing with energy together make a whole. Um, so there, there's yeah. there's some stuff there. There's uh, a lot of stuff there. <laughs> Do you think your grandfather was a priest? I would have leaned that way. We did not have quite enough time. My my mom, I mentioned, was dying of, of cancer. Breast cancer had come back in her spine, and it was just all sorts of stuff. He'd moved from Massachusetts to go care for her. And when the, when, when the Psychic Vampire Codex came out is actually when all of this came to a head. Mom had been kind of going up and down with cancer for almost 13 years. So we kind of hit a point of like, they've given you six months to live. 13 years in a row. So we, we don't know when it's ever going to happen. Um, the, her health took a distinct turn. I, I'm, I'm up in Ohio. This is down in, in Texas. And grandfather had a conversation with me and he said, I'm not going to do anything foolish. I, I wouldn't do, do that. But a parent should not have a child predecease them. I will, I will not outlive my child. Um, I just want you to know it'll be mind over matter. I don't need to be here anymore. I will just go look after her. And I was like, okay. And he just walked into his apartment, was out in the courtyard, smoked a cigarette, walked into his apartment and just fell over stone dead. What? Just. He just willed. He just yeeted himself. (laughs) He just fucking yeeted himself. Wow. Uh, He had. He had been to the to the VA like just two weeks before. Clean bill of health was joking that he had the prostate of a man in his fifties, um, and was all wink, wink, nudge, nudge about like how much work it got because uh, grandfather was juggling five or six women at the time of his. Fancy, yeah. Like he was eighty-one. The one rule my mom had to put in there was please no women of childbearing years because at my age i do not want any younger siblings because he he did not look his age did not act his age and was uh i think she caught him dating somebody who was 40 uh, and go grandpa no he he was he was something else and that was very much like like that was part of his thing and no he he just checked out that reminds me of uh, like Yogananda Pramahansa and a mm-hmm. lot of the gurus, the the real ones who have, you know, I, I forget what it's called. Is it Mata Samadhi? It's like the final Samadhi. 
and their bodies, his specifically, uh, Pramahansas, didn't decay like for a long time. I mean, scientists came in and they were like, the fuck? <laughs> what, why isn't And it's because he just decided. And so his yep. body had this like vibration in it afterward. But it's not, I mean, it is, po- it, we've seen it many times that it is possible, but it takes a, you just don't think that like, you know, grandpa, American <laughs> grandpa yeah. guy is going to be the one who's just going to decide to do that. But he did. Yeah. I, and, and it wasn't like he, I mean, he, he warned me. He was just, it's just like, it, I'm just not going to, I, I don't want to be at her funeral. I, I will not be around for that. So sometimes I have people on, on, I do pre-calls usually for people Mm -hmm. where it's like a 15 minute thing just to make sure we're going to be all right. And a couple of times, it doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while I get someone who a lot of people would call an emotional vampire. Like afterward, Mm -hmm. you feel like balls. You're just like, the fuck did you just do to me? And they just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and they have no social intelligence for a long time, people would call them uh, energetic or emotional mm-hmm. vampires. How do they differ from the psychic vampire that you identify with? To some extent, largely, it's a difference of being conscious versus unconscious and intentional versus unintentional. That's why I thought. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of people have vampiric qualities and something that is interesting that turns up in a couple of different like occult writings about it. Some people may be, maybe, maybe no, some people may become vampiric at different points in their life. If there is something that is like really eroded their energy, like there was some sort of significantly traumatic event, there's a, a chronic illness and they're just not able to sustain themselves. And so it everybody's always taking some energy. We're always in a state of give and take. There's exchange, every conversation we have, every intimate interaction, like like everything. Uh, and the thing that makes it vampiric is when there's a significant amount and it's a regular pattern that there is a, a noticeable amount that the person is taking. So they're taking it for some reason. They may have been born that way. They may be in a place where they just don't have really good boundaries and they're just like frittering their energy away and they need to take it in somehow. And the difference is they don't think of it as vampirism. They don't even think about what they're doing. They just do. Mm -hmm. They're just completely driven by that need on some deep unconscious level, which also means that they're going to take as efficiently as possible, as often as possible. And without ever getting consent, they're just going to do it. Yeah. And I seem to be a target for those motherfuckers, but I have been getting better at boundaries. That's a, that's a like lifelong process, Mm. but definitely when I was younger and in in college, especially, it was just like the, those people would just flock to me and I would be like, get away. (laughs) And I always thought it was because I was just an empath, you know, but Mm. I'm, I'm in the process of redefining what I think about myself. You know, I have some, some words, empath, which vampire floating around in my mind. So um, it doesn't, I don't think it matters too much, but it is curious the dynamics between certain people, Mm. like that there are some people that just seem to be their favorite thing to feed on. And I guess I am tasty to some of those, those uh, emotional vampires. Folks who fall in that 
idea of, of, of an empath are easy to connect to. I mean, it's sort of their nature to connect to other people. Uh, and so, again, the most efficient way possible, they're going to use the path of least resistance. So you're, you're, they're not going to like really get very far with someone who's very stoic, who's very shut down. Right. Uh, that That's not going to get them what they want. They, they want someone who it's your nature to, you're going to converse with them. You're going to be a good listener. You're going to try to meet them halfway. When it is an uncontrolled and unconscious thing, it's really exactly what they write about in the self-defense books. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like what, what her name died? Uh, what was her name? Diane. Dion, Dion. Dion Fort, uh, born Violet Mary Firth. She was a psychoanalyst. Oh dear. <laughs> in, yeah. In addition to an occultist, she was also a prude, um, pretty obvious supremacist, <laughs> very, very like, like straight, like freaked out about anything that might be homoerotic and probably also closeted from herself above all. Um, complicated, yeah, complicated person. Also why I said that the book is, it's, it's a complicated text. Um, it's not something that I would recommend people read now without like some critical engagement with it. Like actually like research the person who wrote it, research her time period, get some context because some of it is not helpful, um, but it is useful to see in terms of its influence. Yeah. I have a lot of baby witches and practitioners that listen in and they're constantly asking questions about like just everything. What do I do about this? What do I do about that? What's your central piece of advice for people who are just starting to investigate the woo of their lives? Spend some time getting to know the geography inside your own head. How do you feel? How do you emote? How do you think? What do you feel like on your good days? What do you feel like on your bad days? Be really honest with yourself. Do a lot of soul searching on like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are your quirks? This thing that you live inside, this brain that you carry around, this is the lens through which all of your experience refracts. And knowing how that will change or color or bias your experiences is essential. And also really understanding like what you feel like that, that sort of like core sense of you will give you the ability to recognize when you are being influenced by something outside of you, whether it's a psychic perception, whether you just like walked through the miasma of somebody's emotional residue, or if it's a spirit whispering in your ear and trying to get you to do something. It's very rarely that, but you won't know unless you've got a good, solid sense of what are you like just by yourself. That's good. A lot of people are really afraid to do that, but it's kind of step yeah. one. It, it, it is it is hard. It is a lot of hard work. It is, it is the hard, messy, ugly work of magic, occult practice, psychic development, all of it. And then the thing that sort of like comes from that naturally is developing good boundaries. But before you have good boundaries, you need to know like, what is your geography? Like, what, what are you? What do you have boundaries around? And, and why? And when do you change those boundaries? And you can't answer that without a lot of self-knowledge and self-searching. 
That's really good advice. And I feel like it, both of those things are lifelong things. It's not like you, you mm. can like check it off a list and then you're done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's not a thing that you solve overnight. It is actually going to be part of your practice your entire life. Recognize that you change. Every experience changes you, that your uh, abilities and your perceptions will plateau for a little while where you think, hey, I've reached, I've reached the pinnacle. And then you realize that that pl- plateau is actually the ground floor of yet another experience. Uh, and I can tell you this, it doesn't stop. Like you will just keep going into new experiences and new levels and, and like expand exactly as far as you are willing to engage and do the work and sustain. Uh, so yeah, it's, it is a lifelong process and journey and celebration. I like the celebration part because sometimes it feels like all that stuff is is just all hard. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I like that you it is it should we should remember that part as well, the celebration aspect. And my I work with some uh like kind of I call them the golden girls now. I have some grandmothers that I work with all the time and they always say the same thing over and over again. And that is that like you need to chill the fuck out and just <laughs> laugh more have fun more. That's always their thing. So, um, you can get like in the weeds of shadow work. I tend to like be heavy handed with shadow work. Sometimes I do a little too much. (laughs) Shadow work is really popular right now. It's really necessary. It's a good thing to do, but the thing to my, my best advice for shadow work is this, you spend some time and you dig in the ick and the pain and the whatever the purpose of shadow work is not to wallow in that. The purpose of shadow work is not to just stay down there in that. The purpose is to pull it out and look at it and put it into context, figure out where it goes, and then heal what needs to heal and find your joy out and through that darkness. Yeah. And I need to hear, that's why they're always telling me that. Cause they're like, girl, don't stay there. You know, you don't need to hang out in that darkness. And I think there's something seductive about the darkness and the pain. And sometimes you just get addicted to it because it's just what you've been doing for a while, but all right. Last question. Okay. Last question. So I ask everybody this and I, I'm sure you've had loads and loads of experiences and it doesn't have to be the most, but it is what's the most profound paranormal supernatural woo thing that you've ever experienced Ooh. yeah i know it's loaded yeah. so i said it doesn't have to be the most it could be just one of the top most hmm. i'm sure from the interview it's become clear that like i'm a little skeptical i like to reserve my judgment for like could it be this could it be that like especially when i was in college i had a hard time committing 100 percent to like this is definitely woo like there's definitely stuff going on I forget which student group it was. We put on a haunted house at this property that I'm going to call Whitethorn Woods because I don't want the Jesuits to to sue me. Um, so that's not his name, but we'll call it Whitethorn Woods. And there were, there were two buildings on it. Like they, it'd been somebody's summer house. It was part of the Ohio Canal system. So there's locks and canals on it. It's beautiful, like country wooded rolling area. There's like thorn trees all over there. And so we would put on Halloween for inner city kids. And then for the weekend, we got to like basically make a a haunted house and haunted woods for all of the students. And that was my jam. I love Halloween. I've always been a goth. I have always been that, that kid. 
going out there as somebody who was raised by people who believed in fairies and whatnot, the land felt interesting and alive in a way that was a little bit more than just there's trees and animals and stuff. And especially at uh, dusk, there would be a shift. And I actively went out there and made an offering to the fairies. I, I, I was like, okay, this actually feels like a fey haunted wood. And I would like you to cooperate with us. We're going to be here for a little while. We're going to be doing some really weird shit in the woods. And uh, so I, I, I baked stuff that my, my grandmother had, had mentioned, like these little spice cakes. And I put out cream and honey. Uh, and I picked a stump where I was doing the offerings regularly with, as we were out there for several days on end, putting all this stuff together. And these crows would come to the stump three, five, or seven. Make of that what you will. And, and I was just like, okay, not sure if it's just the crows are eating the things that I'm put out. Don't, don't care, whatever. But always just specifically these blackbirds. There were a lot of things that happened. And I won't get into too, too much of that because it was actually so much it was unhinged. There was one point where my, my buddy, Charlie Hickey, who was in the band that I was in at the time, uh, he was one of the people leading people out through the woods. His mom was a white witch. He was Christian by choice and was a, we knew one another. We were lab partners in psych. So like uh, he comes out at one point and he was just blanched and looks like his eyes are like saucers. He's like, what, what does a hellhound look like? And I'm like, why are you? Why are you asking me that? And he describes what honest to God sounds like the fucking wild hunt that he had no context for. But like, you know, this is this is October, like right around Halloween. He had been leading a bunch of people through the path that we put together. Um, and first there was a big dog that blocked their path, big black dog uh, that just came out of nowhere and just stood there. And then there was this, this wind and these sounds and like everybody got confused and turned around. And like, he's like, I don't, I don't even know what happened. Like this one person like literally wet themselves. Uh, what? And, and, and so this isn't even the weirdest thing. Like, so, so, so like there's all of these, like people are just having unhinged fucking experiences. And I'm like, a hellhound though? Like, like, and, and he, he describes, and it sounds, he sounds like he's describing a mastiff and, and like the sound and the voices and like the sense of stuff moving in the trees. And I'm like, it's, Okay, I'm not going to tell you that it sounds like you got like buzzed by the wild hunt and the hosting of the shame, but it really sounds like that. Uh, various things are going on. And we get to the point where the weekend is over. We're relatively, you know, unscathed. Some people are questioning reality. Some people have <laughs> converted to different religions over the course of this experience. And the property is set with a little gully between these two summer houses. And we all collectively, um, separate from one another, referred to the one farther house as the bad house. Nobody, they just called it that. It, it, because it just, it felt bad. Like if it was a little deeper in the woods and it felt like the, the woods, the wild had already started to claim that house. Nobody slept in that house. We just put all the spooky stuff in that house and we slept in the other little cabin. So there's the bad house. There's a little gully. There's a little footbridge. And then we are finishing up cleaning and piling all of the junk and packing up all of the stuff that we made and the costumes and, and whatnot. And it's getting a little bit later and it's getting a little bit later. And there's that change in the air and a change in the sound of things. And the woods go quiet in a way that make the last five of us just look up. And this is where it gets just 
I don't know what to make of this. To the point where Charlie and I, sometimes you have experiences where you almost want to forget it happened. Mm. Because your brain just can't wrap around it. The air changes, we all stop, we look up, and blackbirds begin to just pour out of the forest behind the, the bad house. Pour from the part of the forest where that sense of the wild, like there was a part of the forest that just felt more wild, more tight, more, more something. And the birds started to just land on the roof of the house. It was all types of, it wasn't just crows. Um, if, it, if it had just been a flock, like that, it was the right time for stuff like that. But this, this wasn't right. They poured out of the woods, they landed on the roof, and they just sat and stared at us. And more of them kept coming, and they kept getting closer and closer. So they covered the roof. Just all of these grackles and blackbirds and crows and what, just birds that are black with their beady little eyes and little, little beaks, just, just looking at us. And more and more of them until they have covered the house, until now they are landing in front of the house. And there are just more birds coming out of the woods as there is just this sense of like a, you kind of didn't hear it with your ears. It was like this, like a subsonic, like it was mm. some sort of weird rhythm. And I'm like, am I hearing that? And several of us were in a band together. Barry, who now works for the government as a cryptographer, Barry is was the first to just be like, I've got the code to the gate up there and I'm going to wait for exactly 10 minutes. And if you are not out with me, I'm locking it because this is not my jam. Like, I'm just getting the fuck out of it. <laughs> um, one by one, yeah, one by one, people are just like, boom. No, he goes off in his purple tracker. He's he's the first one out. Um, and I, I just want to see what's going to happen because it feels like something's imminent, like something is going to happen. But then there's these birds, physical, actual animals. And like, at this point, they have covered the ground. They're starting to like, just get on the little footbridge and they're no noise. Mm. They're, they're not calling. They're not anything to just all of them front and center, just staring at us as if to say, you, you had your weekend. You had exactly what you asked for. Get the fuck out. Mm -hmm. Bye. Go. Eventually, my boyfriend at the time, yeah, had one of those. <laughs> we all did. It's okay. Those days yeah. are over for me. Uh, <laughs> I, feel, I feel a little bit bad for him, but only a little. Um, eventually, it's just him and me. And we had come in separate vehicles. And he's like, I, I'm, I'm not staying. Like, I'm, I'm just, I, no, no. And I'm like, but what happens when they get here? Like, to, like what, what's going on, though? Like, is something going to come out of the woods? Like, what the hell? Uh, so eventually, uh, I, I am convinced to leave, uh, but it, it was, it was, uh, it was enough of a, of a, like, but what actually just happened mm -hmm. uh, with, with no answer, no explanation. You know, I was, I was like, are those, are those like, are those, no, those are all different birds, but they're all black. Like what's even happening here? And there were multiple of us witnessing this at the same time. Um, I, I kind of tabled that bit in the back of my head going, big question mark, like what even? And might not actually talk about it openly, but uh, Charlie was having a birthday party and a band reunion in like 20, 2002. 
And he started telling the story. And I was like, no shit, you remember that too. Like, I really thought maybe I was sleep deprived. Like, what the hell? That's crazy. Do you, I, my first thing that came to my mind is that they were like gatekeepers. So my metaphysical perspective was, you know, I, I had built up a relationship with Fay land spirits, whatever you want to call them there. And there was definitely something there. And I had invited them to, uh, you know, share our revels and participate in the, the haunting and like scare the John Carroll students and just, you know, have fun. Uh, and I had set like when we would leave. And the thing was, is it was taking a little bit longer to clean up. And we had started to get out of the very explicit time that I'd set uh, in mm-hmm. spirits be incredibly literal. So I'd made a contract. Uh, and yeah, I, I personally believe like they were, you know, they, they, they were birds, they were actual physical beings, but they were also a, an expression, a manifestation, a sort of like murmuration, a collective expression of whatever walks those woods, whatever intelligence is there, because there is an intelligence or intelligences there. And they were like, all right, time to go. Time Deuces. to go. Yeah. That's a weird one. And, that, and because of everything that happened like prior to that, the, you know, that they were, the, the people were freaked out and, and then, you know, like you said, people were questioning their current religions. And then <laughs> this is sort of the, the, the icing on the cake, the, the grand finale, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And I think the important takeaway for me with that uh, beyond metaphysical interpretations was most of your most intense experiences that like life changing worldview changing experiences don't come with neat closure or answers. Truth. And, you know, if they are too easily answered, you have to step back and ask yourself why, you know, is that you projecting too much on them? To this day, that is still a big question mark. I have what I think was going on, but I don't think that I will ever know. Yeah, I think that's kind of a, what you have to surrender to in this world of investigation is that you're going to usually get more questions than answers in the end. <laughs> that yeah. can be super annoying because I too have that like Sherlock Holmes, uh, well, just the the detective archetype in me I always want to like find the thing the answer to the thing and it can be super annoying to not have it but that's just the nature of this stuff and and it's kind of cool because it teaches you how to surrender more I think yeah because it's like bitch you don't you're never gonna get this <laughs> so just you know enjoy the weird experience that you had and just wait till you have the next one yeah reality is far deeper and far stranger than any of us could possibly know The whole system that Michelle explains in her book, The Psychic Vampire Codex, is really detailed. And for me, it was illuminating. If while listening to these two episodes, you felt like a light bulb went off or your spidey sense kicked in, definitely check out the codex. And if you listened and didn't specifically feel connected to the vampire element, but you were still like, dang, I want to tap more into Michelle's fascinating brain. 
There's plenty more woo books where that came from. Michelle has written dozens of books on the occult, so really you can choose your own woo adventure, and they're available wherever books are sold. Michelle also owns a haunted Airbnb in Oberlin, Ohio, that has been featured in Business Insider, Vogue, House Beautiful, and Netflix's The World's Most Amazing Vacation Rentals Season 2. It fills up fast, so if you're trying to get in in 2022, I would book soon, especially if it's in spooky season. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's already booked for Samhain or Halloween in 2022. I also purchased Michelle's shadow work class, which was great. I think you can get the recorded version of that on her website, and she has loads of other goodies like that available for her patrons on her Patreon, which is patreon.com haunted. Per usual, all of those links will be in the show notes for you. And remember, next week will be Patreon-only episode, part two of the Hellier Madness with Stephanie and Brian. And we get real fucking weird in that episode. We actually start talking about crafting and organizing the ritual that we may do in 2022, depending on COVID and a bunch of other factors. Like, you know, maybe we don't want to invoke a god. No big deal. So definitely tune in if you can. And then we are back on track on January 12th. Last thing I want to say here, all I want for Christmas and my birthday, which is December 27th, is more reviews for this podcast. So if you're feeling extra warm and fuzzy and generous this holiday season, please take a minute or two to leave me a review on Apple and or Podchaser. Those reviews really do make a huge difference, especially on Apple. Thank you so much to all of my listeners. We've been through lots of shit together. We're going to go through a lot more shit together. And I can't wait to crank out more new weirder content for you in 2022. I hope you all have an amazing Yule, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever it is that you're celebrating. I think Hanukkah has already passed, but also happy new year to everybody. I hope you have a nice, safe time with whoever you love celebrating with, whoever makes you feel good about yourself or makes you feel like you can laugh easier and, you know, unclench your butt cheeks, that kind of thing because we're all so stressed and tense all the time. So, happy Christmas and everything else. Bye! Thank you for following The Woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow The Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, 